When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Farah Jassat here, the producer of How I Found My Voice. Before we go to this week's episode, I just wanted to let you know that next week on Wednesday, the 10th of February, Intelligence Squared is holding an exclusive live recording of How I Found My Voice with the Academy Award winning actor Kate Winslet. She is best known for her roles in films such as Titanic, Sense and Sensibility and Finding Neverland. If you want to join next week's live recording of How I Found My Voice with Kate Winslet, you can purchase tickets by clicking on the link below in the podcast description. There will also be an opportunity for guests to ask their questions to Kate Winslet. We hope to see you then. Now, let's go to this week's episode. Some of the boys would draw next to the gollywog on the Robinson jam jars. They'd put David Lammy, you know, because it was tough. I could sing, we were a Christian family. I went for voice trials and I had what I describe as my Billy Elliot moment. But for me, it wasn't wearing a tutu, it was wearing a dress. And I became a cathedral chorister. Tony Blair said, look, I'm going to put you in the health department as a junior minister. I I don't want to pigeonhole you as the race guy. And I went along with that. But the truth is, as I found my voice, in the end, it was social justice, racial justice that animated me. If you just pay lip service to David Lammy, guess what? Folk out there who are really struggling give up on folks like me and they take to the streets. ¶¶ 
Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success. How did politicians, artists and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is David Lammy MP, Shadow Justice Secretary, a former barrister and a Labour government minister under both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He's been MP for Tottenham in North London for 20 years and a vocal activist and campaigner, particularly around issues of racial and class discrimination throughout British society, including on some of the most shocking events in recent history, the deaths of 83 people in the Grenfell Tower fire and the Windrush scandal, which saw the Home Office unlawfully classify and deport thousands of black Britons of Caribbean heritage as supposedly illegal immigrants. We're speaking as the Black Lives Matter movement has spread worldwide after the horrific police killing of George Floyd in the United States. And David's latest book, Tribes, explores the widening and deepening social divisions within Britain, but crucially, how he believes we can overcome them. So, David Lammy, welcome to How I Found My Voice. Thank you very much. Very kind of you. I want to take you back, David. I always like to take people back. So you're a child of the 1970s, one of five children of a Windrush couple. Who were your parents? Well, my dad came to Britain in 1956. He was 24. He came from Guyana and he was a charismatic, charming urbane. He had been educated well back in Guyana and he came to Britain ostensibly. He wanted to be a pharmacist. You know, a lot of people were coming in to work in the public services, but some actually were coming in and being placed in parts of industry and manufacturing. And he joined a taxidermy firm, which suited him because he was quite an artist, actually. And he became a very good taxidermy, started his own company. But the truth was he was an appalling businessman. He developed a problem with booze. His charming nature could turn into a degree of womanising. He wasn't an easy husband for my mother. My mother came a little bit later. She was his second wife. She was a country girl. She had taught kindergarten. Quiet, ambitious, probably would have loved to have gone to university and done lots of things and pushed her kids because she didn't get that opportunity. They had a tempestuous marriage But, you know, they bought a house together and were based in Tottenham, having moved from Finsbury Park. And we lived in a typical road in Tottenham. It's a place where people were moving to relatively cheap housing, was seen as a nice area, actually. And I lived amongst, there was an Irish community, white Cockneys, sort of East End types, and Cypriots who were newly arrived, as well as West Indians. What was your family life like in Tottenham? And I I should say, thinking ahead to, you know, your father did leave the family when you were 12. So you had those few years and then it changed. I would say that my life in the 70s, before my father left, was very parochial, very small. We hardly moved out of the N17 postcode. We didn't go much further than Holloway. I remember vividly going on the tube to South London. It was a big deal. My mother worked for a while at Camden Town tube station and Camden Town was just amazing with punks and colour and vibrancy. And, you know, it was so different to Tottenham. It was the most amazing place to go and meet my mum after work. 
So it was a parochial life. I was definitely conscious. My parents were a bit small C conservative. Don't get into trouble. Keep your head down. There was worries about the National Front in those days. And, you know, you didn't see folk like you very much on TV. And when you did see you, sometimes that people you were on the wrong end of the humour, you know, comedians like Jim Davison and shows like Alf Garnet. You know, I've begun to realise that we weren't somehow on the right end of things. <laughs> we didn't have that much money. My dad's problems started to kick in, I guess, as we moved into the 80s. Their marriage became more tempestuous. But I think broadly I was happy. I remember long 1970s summers for some reason. And I was a precocious, bright child, quite sensitive. I liked school. I liked my teachers and some of them were wonderful. And when your your dad left, can I ask, did it change family life? Did it change how you felt about your security or, you know, the families thinking about money yeah, in the future? massively. I mean, so I got this big break. It was the time of Alan Jones, who got into the charts with Walking in the Air. Everyone was talking about choirs and boys' choirs. I could sing. We were a Christian family. I went for voice trials and I had what I describe as my Billy Elliot moment. But for me, it wasn't wearing a tutu, it was wearing a dress. And I became a cathedral chorister. My dad was suspicious at first, but then he really got into it. And I realised he got into it because he sort of knew that he was going to be off soonish, And he wanted to see me off into a good situation. So I remember him taking me up to the school in his trilby hat and his... And this is Peterborough, Peterborough Cathedral, and you won a scholarship to a prestigious boarding school. It was a state boarding school, but nevertheless, it was very different to Tottenham. But still, the boarding school is the kind of institution that lies at the heart of British and especially English establishment traditions. You clearly loved the music. You were clearly talented. But you, you were you the only black boy at I was at the school? only black boy at the school. This was the 1980s. The school was a pastoral school. It was a Christian school. And that's not to be underestimated in terms of the ethos that was important to them. But it was very much a conservative environment. Many of the young people and their parents had never met a black person, really. And so I was a figure of fun. It was difficult. You know, I remember some of the boys would draw next to the gollywog on the Robinson jam jars. They'd put David Lammy. You know, it was it was tough. But somehow I flourished because I did make friends. I certainly realised it was a lucky break because back home in Tottenham by 1985, my dad had left and Tottenham was going up in flames in the Broadwater Farm riots. And my older brothers, I had older brothers, were being stopped and searched by the police, getting into trouble. It wasn't an easy environment back home. So I did realise this was an opportunity for me, as hard as it was. And I certainly wanted to make it succeed. My mother wanted it to succeed. My father had left. I worried a lot about my mother. In those days, there was a lot of shame being attached to being, you know, from a single parent family. But my mother and I had a great relationship and she encouraged me and supported me. And ultimately, I flourished in Peterborough. I ended up being head boy of the school. So something, you know, I turned it around, which is very much my personality. You know, if I'm told I can't do something, I will run towards it and make it happen. A sort of self-belief, really, and a determination not to let the bullies get me down. 
And, you know, clearly you and your mother both saw it as an opportunity to seize. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to be? Was law already something you were thinking about at school? I think I had a sense that I didn't want my parents' life. You know, I jumped around on careers. At one point, I wanted to be a priest. At another point, I wanted to be a pilot. But I realised that I had the gift of the gab. I liked performing. I was in lots of school plays and I suppose singing. And I often say to people, look, I found my voice in Peterborough Cathedral. And so I'm tremendously grateful to that city for what it gave me. And I acquired a certain kind of rigour and discipline as a cathedral chorister. You know, you're practising every day, perfecting the art. And I touched excellence. You know, you've touched excellence, whatever that is, whatever your creative passion is or whatever stimulates it in you. Even if that doesn't become your thing, you can apply it in other areas of your life. So I'm very, very grateful for that discovery Mm. at an early age and the opportunity to make something of myself, which that city gave me. And just thinking, you know, the reality of speaking in places like the Commons, actually having that physical control over your voice, having a trained voice, gives you a huge advantage when often, you know, you're dealing with shouting and distraction and being heard. Um, I was thinking as well that Gina Miller, the Brexit campaigner, who's been a a previous guest on How I Found My Voice, She's also of Guyanese heritage and she also went to an all-white boarding school in England. Um, She had a tough time. But I wonder if it's only coincidence that you've both become and remained such vocal campaigners, despite the fact that you did experience that kind of abuse and the attacks that have come. There's definitely something about what was going on in Guyana around the time my parents were born, Gina's parents were born in the... 1930s, 40s, because it's not just myself and Gina. There are people like Trevor Phillips, Valerie Amos, Waheed Ali. There's quite a lot of us that have sort of gone into public life or somehow on the public stage. Our parents took education very, very seriously. And I think that Guyana, within the wider Commonwealth and the Caribbean, had a very good education service. And also this powerful sense amongst our parents that we were British (laughs) and an expectation that we would take our place and do well. And I am aware that, you know, the journey I've travelled was a huge one. And I, I sometimes I pinch myself. I cannot quite believe that here I am in the House of Commons now shadow Lord Chancellor and Secretary it's sort of patently ridiculous based on my background. But it's not from listening to everything you've told us about your education and your attitude. I mean, I suppose the key question to connect you from this ambitious young man at school um, with a mother who was very keen for you to seize the opportunities to who you became as as a barrister and a politician is where and when did this sense of social justice and campaigning kick in for you? Oh, well, look, the social justice really kicked in because the juxtaposition of Tottenham and Peterborough really struck me. I said to you, I was living a parochial life in Tottenham. I didn't have much of a sense of a different kind of world other than what I saw on television. I had no idea that had I just gone up the road to Enfield, I would have also been in the suburbs a bit like Peterborough. 
And so suddenly I saw these big avenue streets, big gardens, picket fence. So I guess that made me more political. I also, after my father left, really landed on people like Nelson Mandela, still in prison, almost a proxy father figure. People like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, because I think I'd lost a black role model. I made them my role model. I just got more and more political. And my response to racism in Peterborough, my response to being different, my response to having to defend the community I was from because it had gone up in flames and people were taking the mickey out of me coming from Tottenham, was to acquire a kind of political lexicon to defend my home area and to speak up. And social justice and racial justice started to become part of who I was. You went to Harvard Law School and you were the first black Briton to study at Harvard Law School. How did you enjoy that whole experience? I went to SOAS in London. That was really important for me, I think, to come back to London. I found a certain kind of roots coming back to London. And SOAS, fantastic left-wing university, incredibly multicultural, something other than the Eurocentric canon. So that was important. And then I got this big break and went to Harvard. And I only did that because I was into this show on TV at the time called L.A. Law. (laughs) And I fancied Blair Underwood, the black guy in the show. And so I sent off this application, not really thinking about it. And they came back and said, we'd rather like you to come and guess what? We've looked at our records and you'd be the first black guy to join the law school from the UK. And so, you know, that's why I did it. And of course, that was also a transformative experience. And you went on to work in Silicon Valley in California as well for a while. These are quite interesting, important places in terms of the way the world has developed. What did you learn from those experiences, do you think? Well, at the time, you know, most people who went to Harvard went to work in a New York law firm. But this was just the beginning of the dot-com bubble. And Silicon Valley, you know, you didn't quite know where it was or what it meant, but it was really cool and really trendy so people started heading down there so I headed down to San Francisco and that bit of California and what did I learn there well the broader thing is that I think that the odyssey that a lot of black folk make to America was very important for me African Americans inspired me there's a can-do approach in America So I gained a lot from both Harvard and California and being in significant middle class black communities, which was much harder to experience back here. And I had never experienced before. The other thing I learned was I missed home. Where was my Ribena? Where was my cup of tea? Where were my Walker's Crisps? Where was my Sunday roast? (laughs) You know, California was a hell of a long way from home. You know, I was being paid a lot of money, but I, you know, money was not my motivation I joined the Labour Party a few years earlier. I saw what Tony Blair he got to power, what he was doing, and I wanted to be part of something. So I, I came back, and that was definitely the right thing for me to do. And I came back thinking I'd really like to make a break into politics, but not knowing how that would work out. And eventually I settled on the new Greater London Assembly. Ken Livingstone was back as London Mayor. I 
applied with him to be on the assembly. I didn't see a place for me in that stage in the Commons. And I became assembly member, but Bernie Grant, the MP for Tottenham, sadly died. And there I was, if you like, in the right place at the right time. And I put Mm. my name forward and the rest is history. Do you think you played it safe when you started out as an MP? And if I can add on to that question, as when you did become a minister, how did you find your job dealing with civil servants? This was the age of the policy wonk turned MP. And there were some big names around and big egos around. The Miliband brothers, James Pennell, Douglas Alexander, Ed Balls. On the other side, George Osborne, David Cameron, and Michael Gove emerging. That's my generation of politicians that I came in with. But of course, I was nothing like these guys. I hadn't been delivering Labour leaflets at, at SOAS. I, I'd been working really hard to get a law degree. I didn't leave university and, and become a policy wonk and hitch myself to Gordon Brown or Tony Blair. I'd had a slightly different trajectory. But somehow I got grouped with those guys. I'm just a kid from Tottenham and Peterborough. Neither of these areas are the sort of centre of the action. And I did not go to Oxford. It took a while to understand what, how the corridors of power worked, I think, first off. I mean, I arrived in Westminster in the House of Commons. I'd never been there in my life. I'd never even come out of Westminster Tube Station. You just I had no reason to. <laughs> I knew more about... Cambridge, Massachusetts than I did about Westminster. So I took my place for the first time. And and I think that suddenly I realised everyone knew who I was. I mean, everyone knew me. I'd come in in a by-election, but I didn't know all these other people. I was political, but I wasn't steeped in party politics or certainly not in Westminster politics. And then, you know, in Britain, when you're an ethnic minority, it's very hard just to be. You always get placed. So I became the sort of black Tony Blair, which, of course, is patently ridiculous. Tony Blair told you, didn't he, not to get too associated with race. And I wonder what you made of him saying that. Well, Tony Blair said, look, I'm going to put you in the health department as a junior minister. I I don't want to pigeonhole you as the race guy. I think that that was done from a very well-meaning place and I went along with that but the truth is as I found my voice in the end it was social justice racial justice that animated me the first time I think you you really riled people with an issue around that was when you called out Oxbridge but particularly Oxford University in 2018 for its incredibly low number of black British students getting places and you said Oxford is a bastion of entrenched wealthy upper class white southern privilege we need systemic change now you do choose your subjects carefully why was that campaign so important for you to absolutely raise your voice on well you know I was like you know a lot of folk I'm sure like you Samira an ethnic minority who wanted to succeed take to the books and do well and I realised really when I went to Harvard that at Harvard and Yale and much of the Ivy League in America, even though there is a problem of sons of sons who make it to these universities, it's also the case that they're looking for the brightest kids from the Upper West Side of New York, downtown Chicago, people like Michelle Obama and Barack Obama, and they're they're saying, we want the brightest kids in those areas. They're not saying 
those kids have got to get the same grade as the white middle class kids on the Upper West Side. They're looking for talent. And once they've got it, they're insistent that it comes to them. Free. No payment. No nothing. We want you. Pass this test and we want you. We'll make it work. Whereas in Britain, we don't do that. We say you've grown up on the 24th floor of Grenfell Tower. You've got to get the same grades as the kid who's been to Eton. The kid who's been tutored since he was seven. His parents have got sharp elbows. And that's how we measure merit. When actually stacked against those kids, those poorer kids, white and black, by the way, is so much. And so I found actually Harvard to be an incredibly diverse institution. Gordon Brown had made me universities minister. I knew where the bodies were buried. And that's why I did this freedom of information request of all the colleges to work out who was there. And it turned out that there were whole swathes of the north of England where kids were getting straight A's but not making their way to Oxford and Cambridge. And of course, there were more young people with the surname Smith, I think, at the time at Oxford than there were black kids. And and I thought that that was outrageous and we ought to put a spotlight on it. In the last couple of years, David, you've been a very prominent voice for two such shocking stories that, in a sense, no one people argued about Oxbridge, but no one argued that there was a scandal about the Grenfell fire and there was a scandal about Windrush. What has also been shocking, though, is how much has not happened since those incidents, given the outrage. So we know that many families are still not housed and there's still people living with that cladding. Hardly anyone's received any compensation in Windrush. Why do you think, given everyone has seemed to agree that this was outrageous, that so little has been done to make amends? The reasons are complex and many, but I think we've arrived at a place where we set up reviews and inquiries and we kick issues into long grass and don't actually do anything about it. I think there's a lot of rhetoric and outrage at the time that these problems brew up, but then the the news lens moves on. And I've got to say, I think that in an era of partisan politics, and perhaps where the country's central focus was first Brexit and leaving the European Union and the battle over that, and then now more recently the coronavirus, somehow these other issues have just not seen the light of day. I do think that there were some errors made. I think getting rid of the Commission for Racial Equality was a huge error. It was an important oversight body. It held government's feet to the fire. It reminded them about these recommendations and things. And so I've been aware that, yes, of course, I've championed the issues around Grenfell and there is an inquiry. And yes, of course, I championed the issues around Windrush. And of course, again, there was a review and a compensation scheme. But somehow, other than a few of us, in terms of systemic change, there's been an absence. And there has been a harsher, less caring, much more partisan environment in which issues of race and inequality are dismissed. Can I follow up with those? Yeah, um, sure. So, you know, the 
the Commission for Racial Equality was kind of subsumed into this new Equalities Commission. And you'll know that only a couple of days before we're speaking, the outgoing head of it, David Isaac, accused the government of dragging its feet over tackling racism. You wrote a review commissioned by the former Prime Minister David Cameron on racism within the criminal justice system. What do you think is the reality of, of how far anything is really being done? Well, you know, my review is now three, four years old. At the time I wrote it, 41% of young people in our youth offenders institutions were from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. The figure today is 51%. People make a lot of what's going on in the States. There are more black men per capita in prison here than in the United States. Black men make up, what, 1.5% of the British population? But 27% of the prison population. So this is extreme. This is an extreme problem. There is a story that you tell in your book, Tribes, which and I know you've spoken about it before, but it's incredibly distressing and moving. And you talk about being stopped and searched for the first time really aggressively when you were just 12. And it was so aggressive, you actually wet yourself. And I, I, I... I just find myself distressed just thinking of that memory. So first of all, thank you for your honesty in in talking about it at all. But I wonder what impact that had on you and how far an experience like that affects the way that you speak publicly to all those people in Britain who don't know, who've never had that experience. I'm very conscious of obviously coming from Tottenham, representing Tottenham, but what Peterborough gave me. It's important for me to speak up for my constituents. And I'm really conscious that my constituents are so far from power. You know, the average security guard, cleaner, hospital porter, nurse, teaching assistant. These are the sorts of people that live in the community I represent. And I absolutely insist that I have to use my voice on their behalf. Now, beyond my constituency, obviously, lots of people ally with the sorts of things I raise in our public life. And let me be absolutely clear. Yes, I represent a diverse area, but I am absolutely as concerned about issues in white working class areas in Britain where people also don't have a voice. And that was why when I did the work on Oxford and Cambridge, it wasn't just black people. That was what the press majored on. It was on geography and class as well. But I think the point is, I do understand also, you know, I'm I'm a Democrat I love my country. You cannot be a member of parliament and not love the people you represent and my country. I'm a Londoner, but I love the British countryside. I'm married to a white woman. My children are mixed heritage. And so I also want to be a bridge builder. It's not about some sort of separatist, narrow agenda. That's not the way I look at the world. And indeed, when the Tottenham riots blew up in 2011, I was devastated that once again in the community I represented, there would be kids growing up, applying for jobs and not getting them because they lived in Tottenham. There were shopkeepers and homeowners who'd had their businesses and homes burnt to the ground. I was devastated on behalf of my that, that this had happened that this had been done in my in the community I represent and picking up on that you've said that you worked amicably with Boris Johnson at that time when he was London mayor after the 2011 riots I wonder how you look back on that well he always had a problem of an attention to detail you know you might remember when he came back to Britain after the riots had begun he was sort of heckled and booed by the people not of Tottenham but of Clapham Junction because he wasn't on the detail. But he he did govern London from a sort of one nation conservative place that meant that there was room for me. And indeed, you know, 
David Cameron commissioned me to do the work on the criminal justice. These, it wasn't that long ago. It was five years ago, Samira, but we had a big tent politics, which is what I talk about in my book. You could find political consensus. You could agree in some areas. I'm Christian, so there are areas in which I can find that small C conservative, you know, my mother talking in my head to, to relate, if you like, to colleagues in the Conservative Party. You can find common ground. But we've moved, haven't we? And, and Boris has now surrounded himself with advisors, particularly who dismiss all this stuff and have a very sort of libertarian view of the world. It's a very different view of the world and it's quite populist. Really been thinking, you know, looking at the fallout around the Windrush scandal and Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, expressing her anger at civil servants, criticising black MPs on the Labour benches who accused her of not getting racism. How do you feel about the way government ministers and MPs are citing their own personal experience of race? It's creating new sense of unexpected divisions, isn't it, how it's been cited? I think that is a very interesting question. But in the end, the focus has got to be on action. What is the action, not just what is the rhetoric? What do you want to happen? What needs to happen? And how deep and profound is the change going to be? What I would say is that in our system here, in the Westminster sort of model of politics, this is in the end a very incrementalist, evolutionary country. It's not a country of revolution. Whatever friends on the far left of the Labour Party would like, that is not British history. It's an evolutionary yeah. one. And it relies then on good faith. So if you ask David Lammy to do a review, in good faith, implement the review and maybe even go further in the spirit of the subject you've considered. And it's that that's missing. And here's the rub. If you just pay lip service to this and you pay lip service to David Lammy, guess what? Folk out there who are really struggling give up on folks like me and they take to the streets. And that's what we're seeing in the United States. And that's why this stuff is actually way more serious than we give it credit for. Because despair creeps in, and where despair creeps in, we're in real trouble. And I'm afraid extremism, and I write about this in the book, extremism on the far right, the sorts of extremists that send me death threats, which means that I've got massive security, the sort of extremism that leads to young Muslim children being seduced to run away and join ISIS, and I write around that in the book, an example of that, or indeed the extremism of chaos, anarchy and riot, that becomes very real in society. So good faith and consensus, understanding that no political tradition is the font of all ideas and all the best ideas, I think we have to rediscover in our country. terrific questions coming in so I'm going to start putting them to you. Jackie from Birmingham, how does David keep going? To quote James Baldwin, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. How do we keep moving forward? Everyone is saying we're going to do this. What were they doing before? And if I can add on to that, another one which is, you know, we were talking about how little has been done post-Grenfell and Windrush. How can we make sure that the George Floyd 
terrible killing, which catalyzed a furore and kind of global support for Black Lives Matter, doesn't get consigned to a flashpoint in history, actually leads to change. I'm really, really fired up and excited by millennials and Generation Y. Thank God for them. They're really moving things and making things happen. The problem is they're some way from the levers of power. And so we're in for a bumpy period because there are dinosaurs that want to hold on to stuff. Have faith, have hope. The great story of the 20th century. Look at the position of working people down mines, down pits, no rights, trade unionism, the Labour Party in this country, birthing something for the first time and giving those people's rights. Black and brown people colonised, enslaved. Again, Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King, and again rights by the end of the century. Gay men and women couldn't love who you wanted to love in your own lifetime. And again, Harvey Milk and others acquiring rights, same-sex marriage, that journey embarked on. And women, women not able to determine who you wanted to marry, the property of your father or your husband. And again, suffragettes and a whole load of movement during the 60s, particularly women and gender becoming a major issue. A long way to go, as I'm reminded, speaking to you, Samira, but nevertheless, a journey made. The point is, here we are at the beginning of the 20th century and look at the dinosaurs leading countries, big in parties who want to turn the clock back. I'm quite clear the millennials and Generation Y aren't going to let it happen. Being an ally means being a verb. It's a verb doing, doing, doing stuff. And so join forces with Black Lives Matter to bend that history in the right direction. Be an ally to those who are still fighting the cause. And remember, it's not just about identity politics. The story cannot begin and end with your identity. It's about human dignity and that common purpose. And we in this country have got to get into the business of nation building for all of us. Um, Another quick question, this one. What's your view on the cultural revisions about key historical figures, such as a toppling of statues? Look, my view is that... Someone like Edward Colston shouldn't be written out of history, but the statue and folk like that belong in museums given proper context. And I make no apologies for not wanting to hold up as an icon a man who killed 19,000 Africans in that middle passage. And I think it's deplorable that Britain in the 21st century could think that that was a good thing. So it's not about eradicating. We have museums to explore those contexts in the past. But it is about saying the colonial period wasn't just about the end of it, giving these countries independence or ending slavery. It was about 400 years of history. And actually, if we're going to move on as a society, we have to understand racism began then. It began with scientific racism, the pecking order that made white Europeans at one end and black people at the other, close to the animals. And that endemic belief, I'm afraid, has taken a long time to kick off and is still there. And so the call for Black Lives Matter is real. But this country also has a history that actually, you know, lots of aristocrats made their fortune on the backs of hardworking, white working class labour. And so for me, I'd rather not split us all up. I'm interested in that equality fight as well. Can I ask, this is another question that's come in from um, a member of the audience. How did being the only black impact your mental health at school? Do you think there is any residue in your adult life? There were low moments. I talk in the book about moments of depression. 
there are moments where I've, you know, had to take medicine and to assist me in, in those black moments. And some of that begins with losing my father at 12 and the juxtaposition of being in a very different environment and not knowing where do I fit in in the world. I'm not going to say it was easy. It wasn't always easy and it certainly wouldn't be for everybody. But somehow for me, in my makeup, with my disposition, here I am. I feel incredibly blessed. I've been incredibly fortunate, despite some bumpy bits in the beginning. What I say to people it, it, with the imposters, you, you have to work through that. It's resilience that gets you there. You have to hit the lows to get to that place of finding your identity and finding who you are and being comfortable. So in the book, I say, I'm, I'm not just British, by the way, I'm English. And I demand that. My sense of humour is English. I spent mm. seven years in Middle England. I was a cathedral bloody chorister. I'm English. Excellent. Well, we're suddenly out of time. I want to ask one question to finish with, which is you'll know that your critics sometimes accuse you of um, putting people's backs up rather than affecting the change you want. And I think in your book, you'd say, you know, the former Labour leader, Ed Miliband, accused you of giving him a, a lammy whammy in the papers, undermining him by expressing your doubts about winning an election. Would it be fair to say perhaps occasionally you are reckless about the long-term battle versus the short-term truth? No, it wouldn't be fair to say that. I'm afraid there are stereotypes about black men in public life. People use euphemisms like passion, reckless... Just go to a barber shop in Tottenham, sit on the tube and listen to folk. I have said nothing like that. People talk about losing control. I've never lost control. I've never got angry or furious in public. Now, what I've done is speak my truth on behalf of the people I represent with the power that they deserve. And if that puts people's backs up, good luck to you. I don't look back with much regrets on what I've said. It, most often I look back and wish I'd said a bit more. David Lammy, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on How I Found My Voice. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? 
To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.